in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I do ask, like last week, that you keep your Bibles open if at all possible because we're going to be looking and, and combing through a large section of Scripture. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16 is the main uh, focus of what we're studying. Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that You would include us into the number of Your people. That You would have mercy on us. That You would show grace toward us. That You would call us to Yourself. That You would allow us to hear the Gospel. That You would give us new hearts that You would cause us to walk in Your statutes and obey Your commandments, that You would then gather us here in this assembly to experience a small taste of what it will be like in heaven. Father, and we know that as it has been rightly said, if we don't like to be with God's people now, what makes us think we're going to like it in heaven? We are glad to be here. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate your word as we study today. I pray that the living, active word would would come now in in the present moment and help us to understand, would would open our hearts and our minds. I pray that the the sharp, double-edged sword of the word would come and pierce into our uh, our understanding and our intellect as we, as we look at a, a big concept in a short amount of time. Help us to understand. Father, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to focus. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be easily distracted. Lord, I pray that we would uh, rejoice that we are in a gathering of, of Your people of every age and and all different backgrounds, Lord, we, we love to be in Your presence in the midst of the congregation. I pray that You'd help us to focus on Your Word, to be enthralled with Your Word. Jesus, I pray that You would come and, and worship in the midst of this assembly. I pray that You would come and preach in the midst of this assembly. Help us to understand what Your Word would have us uh, to see today. And I pray that You would uh, give us new conviction as we study the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Lord, we do lift up to you your people and your church all over the world. We pray that you would bless today. I pray that you would bless Jordan as he delivers the word uh, in harmony. I pray that you would bless that church and, and feed them, edify them. I pray that your body would be built up today. We're gracious that you would give us one more opportunity to sit and, and to learn from you. Help us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul begins that, that letter by erupting in praise. And he says... Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies. Now notice there, God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The blessings that we have are spiritual, not necessarily physical, spiritual blessings. They are, he says, every spiritual blessing. Now, we don't right now have every physical blessing. And, and in heaven, we won't have every physical blessing that we would consider blessings on this earth. He's talking about spiritual blessings. And these blessings are not earthly. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That's not here. Heavenly places, the, the realm where God lives and, and dwells and manifests the, the full glory of His presence for eternity. In heavenly places, that's where all of our blessings are in Christ as He stands or sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And Paul says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's past tense. It's already done. If you're a believer, you already have every single spiritual blessing that you could ever need, could ever think of having in Jesus in heavenly places. And, and the, the topic that we're looking at right now is how do we get these blessings? They're up there manifested fully in Christ and they, they've been given to us, but how do they come to us? And the answer that we... Uh, that I said last week by way of introduction was they come to us by God's ordained means of grace. The conduit, if you think of electricity, the conduit by which the grace goes from Jesus, the source of grace and power, to us here in Taylorsville, North Carolina in 2016. The means are the conduit, how He gets His grace to us. And our topic specifically as we look at the church that Jesus references in Matthew chapter 16 is what means has God ordained to be utilized that are specific to the gathered or visible or local church. We talked about how we can read our Bibles by ourselves and we can pray by ourselves. But there are specific means of grace, primarily baptism and the Lord's Supper, that have been given to the local church to be carried on until Christ's return. And so today my goal is to set before you a biblical case for what I believe to be the most intimate and personal means of grace that God has given to us as believers. Now the verse that I read, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is believed by many, and, in this, and I agree, is to be the premier text to prove or explain the doctrine of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And I began to explain this a little last week. It's more than just a picture. It's more than just a memory. It's more than just a symbol. It in itself is the reality. It is what we do and a, a, a means by which God gives His grace to us. But before we get to chapter 10, we have to understand the context in which Paul brings it up. Because in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul brings up the Lord's Supper, but not to teach on the Lord's Supper. He uses it as a defense for what he was already teaching. 
Now in chapter 11, which we read almost every time we take the Lord's Supper, there he teaches on the Lord's Supper and he gives instructions for this church. In chapter 10, he just brings it up. And so, if we want to understand what he's saying in chapter 10, we have to understand the teaching that he's trying to enforce, which began in chapter 8. So we're going to go back to chapter 8 and work to chapter 10. So that's why I ask that you would keep your Bibles open and be able to look at several things because I didn't put all of this, this stuff up on, on the slides. Another thing that we have to remember, especially in First and Second Corinthians, is that these are not the only letters that uh, were the correspondence between Paul and the church at Corinth. There were many letters, and, and, and some say three, some say as many as four, two of them. Obviously, we don't have. Um, and so when Paul writes things, and if you can look down, notice at verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. See, what's happening is they, he wrote them, or he heard something from them, and then they wrote him back to ask questions and to explain some things, and then he wrote them back to explain and to help them grow. They were going back and forth. Um, again, verse 25 of chapter 7, now concerning the betrothed, now, now concerning that other matter in which you brought up that, that needs to be addressed. And then when we get to chapter 8, he does it again, now concerning food offered to idols. And that's the first main heading that I want us to think about is food offered to idols. When Paul addresses food offered to idols in this chapter, and I'll explain how all this would have worked in the first century, he puts people in two different categories when it comes to this issue of food that had been offered to idols. The first category is Christian liberty. The second category is sin. Your conscience is defiled. If you eat that food, you're sinful. Christian liberty. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then in verse 4 he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. In other words, here's Christian liberty. If you really understand idolatry, you'll understand that there's only one God. This food that they, quote, offered to idols... It's not offered to, to any, any real God. There's only one God. So it really, if you understand that and you have that knowledge, it's not, not that big of a deal. As a matter of fact, in verse 8, he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We are no better off if we do. In other words, it don't matter when it comes to this food offered to idols for those of us who have the knowledge to understand what is actually happening. Either way, it doesn't have a moral effect. But then there's the other side. The sinful act of eating this food offered to idols by a Christian because it defiles their conscience. In verse 7 he says again, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. That means... They, they sin. They go against what their conscience had told them. Now, here, let me explain this. This idea of food sacrifice to idols and why this would have been equated with sinfulness. What's interesting is most, 
if not all of the pagan religions of the first century, and even today many, but most of them at that time, believed in some sort of sacrifice to that deity. It, it was just kind of common knowledge that if there is a deity, and, and that deity is great and mighty, and we as human beings are not great and mighty, then we must kill something, offer something as some sort of a, a worship or atonement or appeasement. And so many pagan religions offered sacrifices to their deities. And they would come to the temple. They had temples. They had priests. Much like Old Testament Christianity. They would come to the temple. And they would bring this animal. They would offer it as a sacrifice on an altar. Just like, again, in Judaism. They would sacrifice it. And the priest who represented that deity would usually pronounce some sort of blessing over that meat and cause it to be set apart or special now because it's gone through this process of sacrifice. And then they would eat the meat. If there were leftovers, they would take these leftovers to the market and they would sell them. And if you were a, and this is why it became a, a, an issue in Corinth because Christians are being converted and they're going to the market to buy meat. Well, this big selection of meat, it's all been sacrificed to an idol. Well, can we eat this or not? That's why he's addressing it. Now, if you were a pagan, you looked for the meat that had been sacrificed to idols because that's, that's worship. You are, you are, as we're going to see, communing with your deities, your idols. So we need to understand that. We need to understand eating as intimate fellowship with deities. See, again, food would go through this, this meat would go through this ritualistic blessing the priest would pronounce something on it. They thought it made this meat special. In other words, in their minds, the deity was conferring some sort of blessing on this meat. And then they would eat the meat. Again, why, why eat it? What, why not do something else with it? Why not take it home and set it on a shelf? Why not rub it on you somewhere? Why, why eat the meat? We need to understand the intimacy of taking in food. And this we can begin to understand. Think about this. What do you put in your mouth? How comfortable are you taking something that you're not real sure of and putting in your mouth? Milk that went out of date yesterday or two weeks ago or, or hamburger meat that is just, just starting to turn a little gray. You put it in your mouth. Or how would you feel if somebody put a blindfold on you and they said, open your mouth, I'm going to put something in there. I mean, that just to me grosses us out. Because we inside of our mouth, is this just, that's just a place that we, we, we protect. There's something special about something going into our mouths that just, it just affects us. Not just in those nerves. It affects our whole body. Textures are weird. Some people don't like slimy textures like cooked vegetables. Other people don't like crunchy textures. Some people don't like cold things. You drink coffee all day long, scalding hot. But if it's cold and you drink it and you think it's hot, but it's gotten cold, you spit it back out because that's disgusting. It's cold. There's something that happens inside of our mouths that is, is strange. Because the, the senses of taste and, and smell and touch or feeling inside our mouths are so vitally connected to physical satisfaction, we put a very high priority on what goes in our mouth. And it, it actually engages multiple senses. It can lift our spirits when we eat. Or it can just put us in a dump when we eat. Some of us eat 
because we're unhappy. And some of us are unhappy because we eat. It's got this emotional thing that goes along with eating. You eat, you put stuff in your mouth because you think there's going to be some benefit here. It's going to taste good, it's going to feel good, it's going to satisfy me. And you reject eating because you think, well, that's going to be nasty or that's going to make me sick or that's not edible, it's going to hurt me. There's more to it than just shoving something in your mouth. In, in, In essence, eating is just a strange and yet wonderful thing. Also, when you eat, you're taking something outside of your body that's not you, you put it in your mouth, and then you chew it, and you take it and you digest it, and that thing that was not once you becomes a part of you. You take nutrients from it, and then you live off of it. You will expel what you don't need, and you will live off of what you do need. It becomes a part of your your life. And so these pagans would eat this meat that had been sacrificed and blessed by a priest of a so-called deity, a so-called idol, because they felt like, rightly so, that it was the most intimate, individual, personal, physical kinship that they could maintain with this deity. They would take it and they would taste it and they would smell it and they would feel it in their mouth and they would chew it and it would become part of them and that energy would be burned throughout the day and even as Christians we would say set apart this food, sanctify this food to the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies to your service as we have memorized prayers. We we get this. Compound that on top of the intimacy of a shared meal. In the first century especially there was this, this idea that to share a meal was, was publicly proclaiming close, intimate fellowship. You have somebody in your home, or you go into their home. You sit at a table together, or recline at table together, and you watch them chew food. And they watch you chew food, and you, you, get, you talk, and you have great conversations, and your hearts are glad, and, and you know, you're, you'll get something on your face, or they'll get something on their face, and you see it, and you're, just, you're there together, and you're just sharing a meal, and... All of this displayed openly, publicly, we and, and them were friends. We fellowship. We're, we're cl- the closest of friends. Now again, we understand that to an extent, but not fully, uh, because we have large restaurants where we'll go and eat with 200 people, and there might be a, a rapist over there and a murderer over there and somebody who cheated on his taxes over there. We don't care. We don't know. We don't care. We'll eat with anybody. And even other times, we will invite people into our homes that we don't even know. So we, we sort of get it, but at the same time, we, we sort of, it's hard for us to understand how intimate a shared meal was in the first century. But we also need to understand that this, this idea of intimacy is not exclu- or, yeah, exclusive to paganism. For example, in Exodus chapter 18, Jethro, who's Moses' father-in-law, priest of Midian, unbeliever, comes back to Moses after they've come out of Egypt. He brings Moses, his wife, and his sons, and Jethro has heard what God's done. And he, and he says that. I've heard all that's happened. I've heard about the redemption of Yahweh. And he confesses Yahweh is the God of all gods. Now that sounds cool. But then 
We read this in verse 12. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. He, he actually worshipped God. What we're seeing in that section is Jethro has been saved. This is how we'd put it. Jethro got saved. He heard about what God had done. He heard about the salvation of God and Jethro got saved. And then it says, And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And almost every commentator agrees this before God, in the presence of God, was a symbol of a covenant meal. They were saying Jethro is one of us now. In the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, it says, we read, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now we say, I thought nobody could see God and live. Well, it says, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. They, they, what was the, the pinnacle? Hey, God, let me ask you some questions about the Bible. I got some, I got some questions about where does, what happens when we die before heaven comes. No, that's not what they did. They said, let's eat. Let's sit down and have a meal in the presence of God. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is being attacked by the Pharisees. And we read there, the Pharisees saw this. He's gone into Matthew's house to eat. And they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Notice that they don't say, why does your teacher uh, receive questions from these people? Why does he go back and forth with them? Why does he teach them? No, they say, why is he eating with them? Because that shows intimate fellowship. That's special. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, we read this, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, if you're going to take this to mean, you know, this is how salvation works, then salvation consists of Jesus coming into our heart and eating food. It's, it's obviously figurative. He's speaking to the church and he's saying, if the church will allow me into their presence, then we will go so far as to eat together. The, the most intimate Relationship, And so the point that is being made or I'm trying to make here is that when it came to eating this food that had been offered to idols, those who worshipped in this way after this meat had passed through this process of sacrifice and then blessing the pagans, this was the closest, most intimate, personal form of worship to them. Verse 4, again... Paul says, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So, does it really matter? I mean, why would there be this intimacy if the deity is not real? Paul says it, not real. Only one God. So why would there be this shared intimacy? Well, the answer is found in verse 7. This is what makes it sinful. Through former association with idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol. In other words, they believe in their hearts that there is an idol or that there is a false god. And they believe in their hearts that when they do this, they really are fellowshipping. And so if you've left paganism, you don't want to eat that meat because you think that's been, that's, that's, that's the real stuff. I don't want to mess with that. They, they have, in other words, they have faith that this is actually really happening. And therefore, for them to defile their conscience, it's sinful. 
Now flip over to chapter 10 right quick. Are they really sacrificing to false gods? Chapter 10, verse 20. Beginning in verse 19, Paul says, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, and not to God. So are they really holding close, intimate, personal fellowship with, with, a, with an idol? Paul says, no, it's demons. They're fellowshipping with demons when they do that, because in their heart they believe it to be so. And Paul goes on to say, in verse 20, I do not want you to be participants with demons. What is the reality of this, this transaction between the people and the demons? He says, I don't want you to be that. Don't do that. The word participants means a collaborator, a partner. It is a form of another word we're going to look at in a little bit, koinonia. It means, and, and one of the commentators says, an associate associate. This collaborator is an associate in an activity or endeavor or point of common interest, especially one in which the associates both participate in the profits or benefits. That's what Paul is saying. That's what happens when they fellowship with those demons. When they eat that food with those demons, they eat that, that meal that in their mind has just been sacrificed to an idol but is actually a demon. The worshiper becomes a partner with or a sharer with demons. Now, how is that? I mean, how in the world does that even happen? Well, again, it goes back to the problem of this. What makes it sinful? They, they believe it to be true. By faith, they believe, and therefore, it happens. They believe. They, they have some sort of idea about this false god, this idol, and then they, they believe that to be true about this false idol, and therefore, they act out of that belief, knowledge, belief, trust. They act on the revealed will of their false deity. And therefore, when that happens, their soul in the spiritual realm, we can't see it, and this is hard for us to, to grasp, especially as, as, as Baptists who have, for the most part, ran from any type of supernatural, spiritual concept of, of Christianity... In the spiritual realm, they actually commune with, associate with, fellowship with, become intimately acquainted with demons. And I can't even, I can't think of this with, and it sounds weird, I can't think of this without thinking of the word dance. In the spiritual realm, their souls waltz with demons who don't have bodies, they're spiritual as well. Because they believe it to be so, it happens. They become intertwined and they fellowship with these demons. And then you add on top of that the, the concept of eating physical food, their physical body. And all of the emotions that come along with eating fellowships with demons. So, the most intimate form of worship, pagan worship, was expressed in... Worship and fellowship, both spiritual and physical, with a false deity. Paul says it's a demon through consuming food that they believe to be blessed by that deity. The eating of the food was the pinnacle of spiritual, mental, and physical communion. They ate the food and there they were in communion with 
demons. Even more so this than cult prostitutes. That was another part of paganism. You'd, you'd go to a temple and they would have prostitutes representing the deity and you would engage in sexual activity with a prostitute and that was part of their worship. This is even more intimate than that because you actually take the food into your body and it becomes a part of you physically and you live off of this food. This is the most intimate, personal fellowship with demons that a pagan could have or, or to them a, a false god that a pagan could have. And so this is Paul's argument from Christian liberty, those who rightly understand it's not real, it doesn't matter, to it's sinful because you believe it to be so. You believe it to be true and therefore if you keep doing it, it's sinful. That's chapter 8 and he talks about Christian liberty and I would encourage everyone to read chapters 8 through 11. In chapter 9, he takes a parenthetical break to address Christian liberty in detail. There's a lot of talk today about Christian liberty. Well, I can do this because I'm a Christian and there's no, there's no law or I'm under grace and not law and I believe in this law and that law, the law of love. And there's a lot of idea about Christian liberty. Everything, everything today is put in the category of Christian liberty. I can do anything I want to and just say Christian liberty. What Paul says in chapter 9, in essence, is Christian liberty is you have the freedom to give up every one of your rights if it will help a brother, if it will further the cause of Christ. That's Christian liberty. So he takes that parenthetical break, and then in chapter 10, he takes up his discussion again of idolatry, the other extreme. He's already focused on Christian liberty, chapter 9, and he's going to pick up idolatry again. The sinful extreme of this eating food offered to idols. And so chapter 10, in my Bible, the heading says, Warning Against Idolatry. And we're going to walk through these verses. Verses 1 through 5, Paul says, in essence, that the, the ancient Israelites were God's people. And yet, God was still displeased with them. You can see in verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were God's people, just like you, Corinthian Christians, and yet God was not pleased. And then in verses 6 through 11, he gives specific examples of their past and why God was displeased. In other words, examples of their idolatry. He says, verse 7, Don't be idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's describing the scene there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Don't be like them. And then in verse 8, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That was the sin of the, the whoring with the, the, uh, the Moabites. He says, don't be like them. Don't be idolaters. In verses 9 and 10, don't put Christ to the test as they did. They grumbled and complained the whole time because they idolized personal satisfaction and being comfortable over following God. He says, don't be idolatrous like they were. And then in verse 12, verses 12 and 13, he says, in essence, don't think yourself to be above idolatry just because you're Christians. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You're not above this. This idolatry, you say, well, I'm a Christian, I don't have to worry about idolatry. He says, no, you better... 
you had better understand that there is no temptation that will overtake you except that which is common to all people. And God will not tempt you beyond what you're able, but with that temptation, He's going to give you a way of escape. So don't think that you're above temptation. Understand that when it comes, you need to trust in God to rescue you from that. But it will come. The temptation to idolatry will come. And then in verses 14 through 22, in which our, our verse is seated, Paul says, in essence, you two are God's people with a very special relationship to God. And that's why you must not even flirt with idolatry. That's the argument he's making. That's the, the, the course that he's taken. Now, at this point, Paul wants to help the Corinthian Christians understand that they are God's people with a special covenant relationship to God. He wants them to see that. And we all need to see that. If we're Christians, you're God's people. You have a covenant made with God in the blood of Jesus. You're God's people. And they, they need to understand that. He also wants to give them an example of a particular practice, just pick one, a particular practice that displays that relationship. In other words, you're God's covenant people. See, this is what you do. And he also wants to use a comparable example to the paganism with which he began the discussion. So since he began with food offered to idols, i.e. the most intimate, physical, spiritual communion that a pagan can have, the pinnacle of their worship, then he wants to use a similar, equal, directly contrasting practice of the Christian church, the Christian faith, to counteract that paganism. The guys will get this illustration. If you want to say one vehicle manufacturer is more powerful than another vehicle manufacturer, you do not hook up a sport compact with a full-size diesel work truck and say, see, it's more powerful. No, you get two of the same. You get two full-size diesel work trucks in the same class, and you have them pull, and then you say, now we see who's got the power. And that's what Paul's doing. He wants to find something that will compare to their idolatry and their paganism, the pinnacle of their worship, and say, you do this, and therefore, you can't do that. Now let's stop. He wants to pull out of his arsenal, out of the practice of the Christian church, the most intimate, personal, spiritual, mental, emotional, physical form of Christian worship. Now what would you pick? If you were, if you were here and you're trying to do this, what Christian practice would you choose? What Christian practice would you, would you pull out to be the equivalent? In other words, to you, what is the most intimate personal, physical, spiritual exercise that you regularly participate in. Now some of us would say, what's well, got to be my personal quiet time with God when I read His Word? And there's nobody around. I just I open it and I hear Him speak. I pray, Holy Spirit, come and reveal it. And then I read it and God speaks to me. And I learn. I literally feel like I'm in the presence of God. Others would say, private prayer. When I, when I get alone in the, in the, quote, prayer closet, there's no one else around. And I just pour my heart out to God. I, I worship Him, and I speak with Him, and I pour out my heart. I bring to Him all my, my supplications and my requests and my intercessions. 
my thanksgivings, my praises. And that's just a powerful time when I'm praying to the Lord. Others would say, a good sermon. Man, there's nothing like sitting and just hearing a man anointed by God, filled with His Spirit, preaching His Word. I could listen for days. And I just, I, I, I hear it. God is speaking. He's building me. Or we might say, an emotional song. Perhaps there's a particular Christian song that has good theological content, has good music that wells up in our hearts and our souls, and we, we feel that when we, we listen to it and we sing the words, we sing God's praises, it takes over our minds and we're just in worship. That's all we can describe it as worship. In verses 14, 15, and 16, the apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ, chooses the Lord's Supper as the alternative Christian action that makes Christianity and paganism simply incompatible. In verse 21, he says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't do it. The Lord's Supper is the pinnacle of Christian worship, is what he's saying. Now, all that by way of introduction. Let's move to verse 16, and we're just going to walk through it very quickly. And you'll see that a lot of what we talked about last week is, is going to be helpful, and why I didn't try to cram all of this into one sermon. Verse 16, Paul begins, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now you'll remember from last week the cup of blessing. From the Passover, this cup that they drank after the meal, the third cup over which they would pronounce that third blessing from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. They would say, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and they would drink the cup of blessing. At the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper, Jesus takes up the cup while the disciples are all thinking, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood poured out for you is this, this cup that we drink at the Lord's Supper. Now, there are no longer four cups. There's one cup, the cup of blessing, the cup of Christ's blood. Paul says, is this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the way this is worded, it's assumed that they would say, well, of course it is. They, they, they knew this. This word participation is the noun form of the verb, or, or the verb form of the noun participants in verse 20. Remember that word. This, this participation, this koinonia, is the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group. The act of sharing in the activities or privileges. Is this cup that we drink not the act of sharing in the privileges of the blood of Christ? Now, there are a lot of people who when they read a modern translation of the Bible and they see that the word blood has been taken out, they say, well, they're trying to get rid of the blood of Jesus. Because they think that there's something especially miraculous about the physical, actual DNA of Jesus. 
that was poured out on the dirt outside of Jerusalem, soaked into the ground and dried up and gone. It's, it's done. One time event, Jesus sacrificed His life. He poured out His blood and He died. That blood's gone. When the Bible speaks of the word or uses the word blood, it's using that as a representative theme for the giving up, the yielding up of the life of Jesus, His death. So Paul says, is this cup of blessing that we drink at the Lord's Supper, is it not a sharing in the privileges of the death of Christ? Now what are some of those privileges? Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read a bunch of these. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Eternal redemption secured, not purchased and said, well, here it is. If if anyone would like to come and receive some redemption, here it is. No, He said it was secured. It was nailed down. It was bought and purchased by His blood, by His death. And we participate in the benefits of that when we drink the cup. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, speaking of Jesus, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So propitiation. Jesus put forth in His death, killed on the cross. He was a propitiation. He was absorbing the wrath of God that had been headed toward God's people. Jesus absorbed it in His death took care of all that. All of the debts are paid. There's no more wrath to come. There's no more judgment. There's no more punishment. There's there's no condemnation even for those who are in Christ Jesus because of His blood, His death being a a, a propitiation. And we get the benefits of that when we drink the cup. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, How much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? Justification. What is justification? It is God regarding sinners as if they had never sinned. By His blood that is in His death, Jesus finished the once and for all obedience that was required for us to be then reckoned obedient. His active obedience and His passive obedience finalized. And when we by faith trust in Jesus, God gives us all of that. That is Christ. It's not ours. It's Christ's obedience. But He gives it to us and then reckons us as having fulfilled all of His demands like Jesus did. We're justified, declared righteous on account of His death. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, "...in Him we have redemption through His blood." The forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption from slavery. Forgiveness of every past, present, and future sin all comes because of the death of Christ redeemed from slavery. Redeemed with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Judgment towards us? No. God's judgment on His Son so that we can be redeemed all by His blood. And we share in the privileges of that when we drink the cup. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And later it will refer to the, the blood of His cross. Speaking of His death, the blood represents Him giving up His life. And Paul says there, because Jesus gave up His life, you who were once estranged from God 
are now brought near into His presence to fellowship with Him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, again speaking of Jesus, through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Peace. Unity. All of creation that was in the bondage to decay is being unified under the Lordship of Christ because He was the one who gave His life at the cross. He died. So when we drink of the fruit of the vine, whether it be wine or juice, with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are receiving what Richard Barcelos calls a top-down, from heaven to earth, fellowship or sharing in the privileges of all that Christ purchased in His death. All of these benefits, we get them. Redemption secured at the cross by God's grace and through our faith becomes redemption applied by the Holy Spirit when we drink the cup. Then we move to the bread. The bread that we break, Paul says, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Same, same phrasing, assumed positive answer, but now he uses the bread. Moving from Passover to the Lord's Supper. Jesus took that unleavened bread that was probably dipped in bitter herbs and spices on that last Passover meal, and He handed it out, handed out what they would have known to have been the bread of the affliction. Here, eat this bread and, and remember what your forefathers and your ancestors went through in Egypt. And Jesus says, it's no longer a bread of remembering past affliction. It's now the bread of the present affliction that I will take on your behalf. Break it. This is my body broken for you. The affliction now comes on me. You just eat. So when we break bread like Christ's body was broken, His physical body broken. That's what we are symbolizing. We're, we're taking part. We are participating in His broken body. And again, it's representative of all that was achieved in His broken body. When we think of Christ's physical body, we're immediately reminded of the incarnation, the humiliation of, of the eternal Word of God who took on flesh became a human being so that He could fulfill certain tasks for our redemption. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. See, we can't be reconciled as flesh and blood people if we don't have a flesh and blood atonement. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. See, because Jesus came in a human body and suffered in a human body and then defeated death in a human body, we who exist only in human bodies can say, What death? Where is your sting? Where is your victory? I'm not afraid of death. That's already been beaten. The, the final enemy has already been defeated. We're just waiting for him to be thrown in the lake of fire. We're already victorious because he took flesh and blood and defeated that enemy. Hebrews 2, 17, Therefore we had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He had to take flesh and blood so that he could be made like us so that he could be a merciful high priest, a faithful high priest, so he could intercede and know exactly what we're going through in all of our temptations. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. See, the, the action of the cross, the, the, the event of the cross was not just this spiritual thing happening in, in the spiritual world. It was, but He actually had a physical body that was actually nailed to an actual Roman cross and God's wrath toward every single sin of every single one of His people in all of eternity was poured out on that physical body. He bore God's wrath in His body on the tree so that we don't have to take it. By His physical wounds, we are spiritually healed. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's reconciliation again, to bring us to God. To seal up that point, 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He had to become a man, because we are men. But He had to be God, because He was bringing us to God. He's reconciling us to God. Jesus is God and man in one person. And that's the only way it would work. So, these are all the benefits of Christ's body and it being broken. And Paul says, when we eat of the bread of the Lord's table in faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive again a top-down, a heaven-to-earth fellowship, sharing in all of the benefits secured for us because Jesus suffered as a human being. Redemption secured by God's grace and through our faith becomes redemption regularly applied by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. That's the argument of verse 16. So, does anyone who walks into a church and eats some bread and drinks some juice... They receive all of these benefits. They, they are automatically participants in the, the body and the blood of Christ. No. We go back to the paganism. Only those believing. Only those who eat this bread and drink this juice as really blessed by God. As really representative of these things. It's faith that makes it real. It's by grace through faith that we are initially saved and regularly sanctified. Again, how does this grace get to us? It gets, through, gets to us through these means. It comes to us. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes to us at the Lord's table. And for those believing, He mediates His grace to us. All of the benefits of His blood spilled, His body broken. By faith, our hearts and our souls in the spiritual realm, we can't see it and sometimes we don't even feel it, but in the spiritual realm, we actually commune with, associate with, 
fellowship with, become intimately acquainted with the Lord Jesus Christ, His Spirit carrying on with our spirit. We, and, and again, this is strange, our spirit dancing with the Holy Spirit in a world we can't see when we drink the juice and eat the bread. So the Lord's table is intimate. And the Lord's table engages your physical body, your physical senses. The Lord's table engages your mental and your physical faculties because it requires a heart of faith. Your whole body is caught up in this act of worship. But that's not even the the kicker. The Lord's table is intimate for every individual believer. Every, Every single individual person where you sit, in your seat, by yourself, because God has commanded every individual to eat this bread and drink this cup. But the Lord's Supper has not been given to individuals. It hasn't even been given to families like the Passover, households. It's been given to the church. Only the church. We look at chapter 11, verse 20, where Paul is, actually begins to teach on the Lord's Supper and the way the Corinthians had corrupted it. Verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And he he goes on to rebuke them for their sin. They were coming together saying, we're taking the Lord's Supper, but they weren't taking the Lord's Supper. They were taking man's supper. They were going ahead and eating and getting full and drinking and and acting like it was just this whole big feast. Well, I'm hungry. I hope they got extra bread for me because I didn't get... I didn't get in in time today. I was outside. You know, I don't know what they might have been doing. I'm just hungry. I didn't eat before I came. And so they would make it man's supper. And he says, when you come together, you're supposed to be eating the Lord's Supper. It's given to the church. So the Lord's Supper is the most intimate, spiritual, physical fellowship and communion known to the individual Christian that he or she must only participate in with the gathered assembly. So you get together... And then every single one of us has our, our, our fellowship with Christ as a body. So, if the gathered assembly, right here, what we're doing, if this is an already but not yet little taste, little glimpse of what heaven will be like someday. In other words, what we're doing right now is what we're going to do for eternity in a, on a new, hev- new heavens and new earth. We're going to do this forever. Sit under the Word of God with the Word of God, speaking to Him in special, close communion with God and with His people. This is what we're going to do forever. If this is just a little glimpse of it, and, and the pinnacle of the glory of heaven is not, well, I get to live forever, I get to ride a, ride a lion or fly on an eagle. The pinnacle of heaven is that we are going to have special, intimate, close, personal, individual, physical fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus, then... Right now, the intimate, physical, spiritual fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus must be the pinnacle of our worship. It must be the apex. Everything is working towards that. In other words, the Lord's Supper is the apex of everything we do as a gathered church. It all comes to the point where we sit down and we eat with Him. So I would present this question And this may radically, I'm hoping, I would imagine, would radically begin to shift the the structure of what we do as a church. 
Have we ventured far enough into communion with Christ if we stop short of eating with Him? If we just... If we take Revelation 3.20, be able to stand at the door and knock. We, we look at it like a house. If we say, Jesus, come in and, and point out some things that you see are dirty. We invite Him in. He points out, oh, that's, a, that's a mess over there. You're doing pretty good over here. I'd like to really remodel all of this over here. Um, and then we say, okay, well, thank you. And we shut the door and we say, well, I'm going to try to get all that stuff cleaned up until next week and we'll come back and you do it again. That's, that's what we do when we open the Word of God and we allow it to pry into our hearts as He shows us, this is a mess, this is doing pretty good, this is what you need to completely remodel. Do we stop and say, all right, now you leave, come back next week and let's just see how we've done? My answer is no, that's not what we do. We preach the law. We preach God's holiness and we preach God's commands and we preach God's righteous standards. And we just, we realize we're, we're all under a curse, if that's God's standard. But then we, we preach the gospel and we show how Christ, in all of His work, fulfilled all of the righteous demands of God in our place and on our behalf. It's done. And then, at that moment, when we realize what Jesus has done, what we've done, where we stand in this whole thing, we realize I'm not worthy to be even in the presence of this majestic Savior, I don't, I don't deserve to be called a son or a daughter of this Savior, this wonderful Redeemer. And just as we're about to shut the door and say, well, just come back next week and tell me what I need to fix again, Jesus pushes the door back and He says, can I not come in and eat and fellowship for a while? Can I not sit down and let's, let's commune together? The Lord's Supper is grace. Sinner, sit down with Christ. That, that's, what we, that's what we're doing he asks, can we not fellowship? I'm, I'm here to give you grace. I've pointed out all this stuff, and you realize you've fallen short and there's a lot of work to be done. You need some grace. Don't push me out now. Don't say, well, that's it. Let's pray and be done. Let's sit down and eat. Let's receive that grace. Let's, let's get it. So, we turn now to the Lord's table. And, and someone can begin to distribute uh, the elements here. As we prepare our hearts, remember those who eat in faith commune with Christ. And so I'll wait while everyone gets their things.